A few months after Jesus was born, uh, Mary and Joseph and their newborn baby made a home for themselves in Bethlehem. And sometime within those first two years of baby Jesus' life, there were some strangers from the east who, who came to Jerusalem with a question. Where's the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. By all accounts, the fact that these strangers from the east were in Jerusalem asking the question they did was, it was strange. Right? These, these strangers, they were not Jewish, which means they were Gentiles. And a Gentile is nothing other than anyone who is outside of God's original covenant people, Israel. And so to borrow a, a, a word from Paul this morning in Ephesians 3, the fact that, that these non-Jewish people, these stranger Gentiles from the East, were in Jerusalem asking a question about a Jewish king, it, it presented a bit of a mystery to God's people. Now, God's covenant people, they knew from God himself that foreigners, that Gentiles, that strangers had a place in God's covenant. I mean, God made provisions in his holy law for Gentiles. Through the prophets, God made promises about these Gentiles. I mean, you heard one this morning from Isaiah 60. Nations will stream to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn, that the glory of the Lord is going to rise and, and settle on us, right? A collective or inclusive plural. So the mystery wasn't so much the fact that these strangers were in Jerusalem asking this question. The the real mystery is, what part do these strangers from Jerusalem, these Gentiles outside of the covenant of people of God, what place do these strangers have in the new covenant that God was going to establish through the Messiah? Now, in Ephesians 3, Paul solves that mystery for us. Maybe better put, God solves that mystery through the Apostle Paul. He says, through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel. They are members together of one body. They are sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. I mean, you can hardly have clearer language than what Paul uses there. Together, 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 heirs, members, sharers, right? So the, the Gentiles, the strangers outside of the covenant have an equal standing and an equal place in the new covenant that God would establish. So then really the mystery becomes not so much why these people are there, but the mystery is how is God going to accomplish this? How is God going to take those who are strangers and make them family? How is God going to take that which is unfamiliar and make it familiar? How is God going to take that which is exiled and excluded and make them included? Well, that's really the mystery that the Apostle Paul unravels for us this morning, and we get to see by looking at this account of the Magi, how God does this, how God takes people from being strangers to being heirs. Now, who were these men in Matthew, in Matthew chapter 2, these strangers from the east? Well, Matthew identifies them as the Magi, but really that's just kind of scratching the surface. Depending on who you talk to and what you read, um, these men were either astrologers or astronomers. But either way, they were men who spent their lives looking up at and studying stars. They were an ancient order of men who were employed long, for a long time by kings and courts for the important job of interpreting signs and dreams. And this is kind of putting it lightly, but there was a lot of hocus pocus involved in the work that they carried out. Uh, they used witchcraft and the occult to accomplish their purpose. So, so these men, they were men who studied the stars for a living. 
And one day as they were doing their job, or I should say more specifically night, stars don't typically appear during the day, one night as they're doing their job and looking out at a place that should have been dark, they see it. They see a star that baffles them. It, it behaves different than all of the other celestial bodies in the sky. It moves differently. It shines brighter. And it defies their collective wisdom that this order had about this star. So when they see it, they know it's something different, something special, and, and they have an epiphany. They remember what is myth or legend or prophecy. Now, we're not entirely sure where these magi would have gotten the prophecy, but you can draw some pretty good inferences from Scripture. And not, I'll tell you personally what I believe about these magi. These magi, I think, came from a place called Babylon. You've got to remember who Babylon was and what Babylon did. Prior to the rise of the Persian Empire, Babylonia was the world power at the time. And for over 30 years, the Babylonians came and laid siege to the southern kingdom of God's people, and specifically the holy city of God, Jerusalem. And finally, in 586 BC, the Babylonians knocked down Jerusalem's walls and destroyed her temple and carried away the brightest and the best of the Jewish people there, including a man by the name of Daniel. That name sound familiar to you? The Old Testament prophet. Now, when Daniel was carried away, he was a young man, and when he arrived in Babylon, he was given a Babylonian name, Belteshazzar. Now, over his time there in Babylon, Belteshazzar rose through the ranks of the Babylonian courts until eventually he was placed in charge of this ancient order known as the Magi. They're the ancestors of the ones who show up in Matthew chapter 2. Now, Belteshazzar, he, he baffled often these, these courts of the Magi because he he had wisdom that was otherworldly. He had knowledge that was greater than any of the knowledge that, was, that these magi held because that wisdom and knowledge came from God. He also had what seemed to be impossible powers. He could interpret dreams with, with great accuracy and detail. He could sleep on the napes of lions' necks while he sat in their dens. And, and even his lieutenants, men by the name of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, those names sound familiar to you? Even his lieutenants seem to have that power because when they're thrown into a furnace, a furnace so hot that, that even the people who threw them in were burned and killed, well, these men, they walked around freely. So needless to say, when Belteshazzar, when Daniel spoke to this order he was in charge of, this order of Magi, they would listen, including listening when he would do something like share his faith. And make no mistake, when Belteshazzar shared his faith about the one true God, People would listen because he was not afraid of it. Sharing his faith is what got him in trouble and thrown in the lion's den in the first place, isn't it? So Daniel, Belteshazzar, would have shared ancient prophecies with these magi, like the one from Isaiah 60. Nations will stream to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Or, or one that would have, in particular, fascinated people who were astrologers and astronomers. One from Numbers 24. A star will rise in Jacob. Now, eventually, Daniel did what every other man does, which is what? Die. Daniel dies, and that generation of magi, they die as well. And to borrow a few lines from J.R.R. Tolkien, what should have never been lost was forgotten. And history became legend, and legend became myth. And that myth may lay fallow in that ancient order of magi until all of a sudden, in that dark Judean night, there was a star that appeared in the night sky that shouldn't have been there. And... When they saw the star, they remembered the prophecy, a prophecy that told them a king of the Jews had been born. So they go off and they start searching for him. Now, these magi, they, these strangers from the east, 
they typically have another name to which they're referred. Do you know what it is? I actually, I said it in the children's uh, message. Wise men, right? Wise men. They're typically called wise men. And that, uh, that name is a bit of a misnomer, and it actually can, can lead us to some implications that can also lead us to a dangerous conclusion. Now, wise men implies that these men were learned and scholarly men, that they knew a great deal about nature, and that then these men, this is the conclusion you would draw from this title, that these men were able to use all of their knowledge of the working world to determine the exact location of Christ and therefore worship him. And it's through their worship that they made that transition from stranger to heir and sharer and member of one body. But I want you to understand that that notion is fundamentally false. The, the title wise men, well, it's, there's a, an aspect of it that's true, right? These men were wise and learned by, by worldly standards. They understood a great deal about the way that the natural world worked and operated. But when it came to godly things, when it came to godly wisdom, these men were fundamentally flawed and ignorant. I mean, these wise men could point, these magi, they could point to that star in the sky and say, hey, this means a, a new king has been born in, in, to the Jews. But what's the only reason they knew that? It wasn't because the star in the sky that they saw. It was because God told them as much. So as far as the rest of the details were concerned about where this, especially where this newborn king of the Jews was, they were fundamentally ignorant. They had no idea. So these men who were wise by worldly standards were forced to use things like logic and human reason to try to determine where this king was. And so where does logic and reason lead them? I mean, where would you go if you knew that a king of the Jews had been born? Where would you go and search for a Jewish king? You'd go to Jerusalem, the ancient city of Israelite kings, the, the place where David and Solomon reigned. They went there because this is the place where logic and reason led them, where the natural knowledge that they had led them. So the primary knowledge that these strangers from the East are operating with, I say primary because they had a piece of the revealed knowledge, but the primary thing that these men are operating with is the natural knowledge of God. The natural knowledge of God are the fingerprints that God leaves in this world for us to be able to see him. And the fingerprints that God also leaves on our heart for us to be able to feel him. The natural knowledge of God is what we can know about God from both nature and our consciences. We have full possession of the natural knowledge of God in the same way today that the Magi did 2,000 years ago and that people long before them did. And you can use that natural knowledge of God to discern a great deal about God himself. Number one, that God himself exists, for no creation can exist without its creator. You can discern from the natural knowledge of God that God is eternal, that he existed before creation. You can discern that he's powerful, that God, that God brought this universe into being somehow we know by spoken command, but the natural knowledge shows you, hey, it's got to be brought somehow. You also know that or can discern that he's wise, right? Just look at the way your bodies function, continue to work day after day, the way the world functions and, and all holds together and moves. But you don't just see God's fingerprints in creation, you feel it on your heart because deep on our heart, God used his finger to write and carve out his holy law. And he has given this, us this spiritual emotion known as a conscience. A conscience that speaks with every action that you take, either in approval or condemnation, showing us that we are accountable to someone that is bigger than us. The natural knowledge of God, just like it did for the Magi, can lead us to, to know a great deal about God, but there's a problem with it. And the problem is not with the knowledge itself, because the natural knowledge of God comes from God. 
which means that it is holy, it's good, it's something to be longed for. The problem with the natural knowledge of God is with its limitations. The natural knowledge of God can tell you God exists, that he's powerful, that he's wise, but it can't ever tell you who he actually is. It can't point you to who the Messiah is. It can't tell you the lengths that God would go to rescue you from the the depths of your problems, from sin, from death, from Satan. The natural knowledge of God is what these magi were operating with when they went off to Jerusalem. And just like the natural knowledge of God fell short in, in taking these magi initially to the right location, in the same way, it falls short today in leading anybody into a saving relationship with God. It falls short in taking somebody from being a stranger to being an heir, a sharer, a member of one body. So if the natural knowledge of God fell short for the Magi and it falls short for us, that means that something else is needed. Now, there are plenty of people today who are strangers to God, plenty of people today who are searching for God. They're searching for actually what all of you have. They're operating with the same knowledge that those magi have, that you and I have. The problem is that that natural knowledge is combined with something that we call, that the Bible calls sin. And what sin does is it blinds us. It keeps us walking in the darkness. So people who are searching for God with only the natural knowledge of God are always going to search for a God that makes sense to them, a God that is logical. They're going to search for God in the wrong places, in the wrong people, in in ways that he never chooses to reveal himself. So just like it was for the Magi, the people searching today need something more than just the natural knowledge of God. They need something more to explain the mystery of how somebody goes from being a stranger to becoming an heir to the kingdom. What they need is for something to be revealed, which is exactly what God does for those Magi. Using the logic and the knowledge at their disposal, these Magi, they go to where? Jerusalem. They go to Jerusalem and they find Herod in his palace, and they asked that question. Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in its rising and have come to worship him. And this, of course, makes Herod just bitterly angry because he has no idea what they're talking about, and the threat of a new king means a threat to his power. So, So Herod, though, he has enough sense and enough wisdom to call in people who would actually know the location of this newborn king. He calls in his court theologians, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, And he asked them, the Magi's question, hey, where's this newborn king of the Jews? And of course, these chief priests and the teachers of the law, they have the wisdom. They have had God reveal his word to them, so so they tell Herod. In Bethlehem, in, in Judea. For the prophet Micah said, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. That's where he is. Not in Jerusalem but in Bethlehem. So Herod, he, he takes what was revealed to him by these court theologians and he takes it to the Magi and says, go and search for the child. And when you find him, when you find him in Bethlehem, come back and tell me so that I too may go and worship him. And if you were here last week, you remember that when we talked about the slaughter of the holy innocents, that Herod had no intention of actually worshiping the newborn king. Instead, he wanted to kill him because he was a threat to his power. So these Magi, they... They set out with this newly revealed knowledge, knowledge that came from the word of God. And in fact, this newborn king wasn't in in Jerusalem where all logic and reason would tell you, where the star had led them initially. This new king was in Bethlehem, a place where nobody reasonably would expect to find a king. So these magi, they head out, 
these strangers, they head to Bethlehem and all of a sudden the star appears and leads them to the exact location of the Christ child. And they bow down and worship him and give them gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. By what God revealed to them, by what God revealed to them, he took these magi, these strangers from the east, he took them and made them exactly what the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 3. It's through that revealed knowledge that God made them heirs together with Israel. He made these strangers members of one body together with Israel. He made these strangers sharers together with Israel and the promises in Christ Jesus. It was only by, only by what God revealed. And these magi, they were just the first. Because because with these magi, God ushered in a new age that meant wave after wave of Gentiles would come and do just what they did. That they would come to faith in and worship this newborn king of the Jews. And it's all by revelation. That's the important thing to remember. It's all by revelation. It's the thing that you and I need. Remember I said earlier, everybody's got access to the natural knowledge of God in the same way that that the Magi did 2,000 years ago. And the psalmist says that, that you're a fool, an utter fool to ignore the evidence that the natural knowledge of God presents. But the natural knowledge of God is limited. It can point you to the existence of God, but it can't actually bring you into a saving relationship with God, which means which means you and I needed something more. It means today we still need something more. We need revelation. We need God to reveal himself. And Paul in Ephesians 3, he talks deeply about the need for revelation, especially when it comes to this mystery, where he says that that this mystery remained just that. It remained a mystery to him, something unknown, something that he says was hidden in the will of God for ages past. And Paul was a bright dude. He studied at the preeminent religious school under a rabbi named Gamaliel. He was the Pharisee of Pharisees. I mean, he's the top dog of the top religious order that exists in the first century. He is, has all of the human reason and logic you could possibly want. He's got all of the natural knowledge, and yet none of that could possibly unlock the mystery that he's talking about. The only way for this mystery to be unlocked, or maybe better, for it to be solved, was for God to act. It was for God to reveal the solution, which is exactly what he did. God revealed the solution to this mystery, and the minute that Paul had possession of this mystery, or the revelation of this mystery, do you know what he did? Revealed it to other people. He says it was this grace that was given to him to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make plain the administration of this mystery that was hidden in God in ages past. You know, you and I with the Magi, We were once strangers to God. Our our sin made us that. We were born from sinful parents, and Jesus is pretty clear. Sinful flesh gives birth to sinful children. And so our sin, it alienated us from God. It exiled us. It caused us to be strangers. And look, you could use all of the natural knowledge of God that you want to try to find a solution to the issues that you have, but none of it would actually work. You were once strangers to God, and yet now I'm looking at a a room full of people who are heirs, who are members together, who are sharers in the promise of Christ Jesus. And the difference between your time as a stranger and your status now as an heir is the revelation of God. It's God revealing himself to you. And the place where God clearly and primarily reveals himself to you is where? It's in the word of God. It's in his holy and precious word. And it is not until God opens up his word to you 
that you understand who he truly is. When God opens up his word to you and reveals himself, he does so through his son, who, as the writer to the Hebrews says, is the very manifestation of his glory, the exact representation of who he is. As we'll confess in a few moments, he's true God from true God, light from light, begotten, not made. And when God reveals himself to you through his son in your word, he makes you all of the promises in Christ. Promises of sins forgiven, removed, forgotten, and eternity. When God reveals these things to you, he is taking you from being a stranger to being an heir. And God used what he revealed to you to plant and and sustain and strengthen a saving faith in your heart, which is nothing other than a simple trust in who God is and all of the promises he makes you. And consequently, it's that saving faith that makes you what Paul says, an heir. And what is an heir? An heir is somebody who lays claim to an inheritance from God. You are a member together of one body, which is what? The church. And I'm not just talking about the local church. I'm talking about the big C church, the sum total of all believers of all time who profess a common faith in an uncommon Savior. That saving faith which God plants in your heart through his revealed word also makes you a sharer together in the promise in Christ, a right relationship with God, peace, forgiveness, and an eternal life with him that never ends. And now Paul says, because of that faith, you and I can can do something that strangers can't. We can worship God. We can approach God in confidence, not in skepticism and doubt. We can approach God in freedom, not in fear. We can bring any and every trouble to him, any and every request. We can give him every ounce of thanksgiving that our hearts can muster to him because God has taken us from those who were strangers and made us heirs. Now, there are plenty of people today who are searching for what all of you have searching for what the Magi were. And the Apostle Paul, he says that you and I actually play a part in giving them the thing that they're searching for. He says that you can actually lead these people to the revelation of God's word. You can show him or show her or them, a group of people, who God is and and who the Son of God is. And it's not just that you can do this, implying that you have the ability and, and that you have a choice in doing this, He says, this is actually your purpose. Listen to what he says. Paul says, this mystery was hidden in God in ages past. And his intent was that now, through the church, through the church, that the manifold wisdom of God should be made known according to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the purpose of the church. That's God's eternal purpose. It's the thing he's always wanted for his church from before time began, to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ and to proclaim the manifold wisdom of God. But boy, is it easy to lose sight of that. It's easy to lose sight of the true purpose of the church and sometimes think of the church like uh, maybe like the first century Jewish people did. I mean, that's how they would have treated these strangers who were showing up. The church to become exclusionary, hypocritical more about rules than it is about giving grace. It's easy to think about the church more in terms of like a social club, a place where you come to fill your social tank, hang out with some people, and maybe get a little Jesus on the side. It's easy to think about church as, well, kind of like just what we've been doing the last five or six years, building up a group of people to to ultimately build this big and beautiful space that we're hopefully going to break ground on in a few months here. But none of that, none of that is the actual purpose for the church. And Lord willing, that will never be the purpose of HLC. Because the purpose of Huntersville Lutheran, everything we are 
everything we ever do, everything we will be, the purpose of all of those things is to proclaim the unsearchable riches of Christ. It's to make known the manifold wisdom of God. And God does this, not just corporately as we gather as a a church, but individually. God works through our proclamation of those unsearchable riches and the wisdom of God to strangers. And to take those strangers, like those magi from the East, your neighbor who is an unbeliever, your friend who is struggling at work, to take those peoples who are strangers to God and God a stranger to them, and through the gospel make them an heir with you, a sharer with you, a member together with you. Lord Jesus, continue to reveal yourself to us through your saving word. Continue to work through our proclamation of the gospel, just like you did with those magi 2,000 years ago, and continue to bring wave after wave of people together, strangers who are heirs with us, who are sharers with us, who are members of one body with us. God grant that in his holy name. Amen.